Y'all, this is a real special one. Welcome to another episode of the Voices of Black Folk podcast. I'm your host, Will Anyu. I remember when I first graduated from my grad program, I had been poor for so long that honestly, any offer that came across the table, I probably would have taken. And unfortunately, I did without negotiating, without looking at, you know, what the different values that I brought to the organization and what, um, you know, the organization was giving me in return. No one ever taught me how or why it was important to negotiate an offer. Although I made that mistake, you don't have to. Today we have with us Ms. Danielle Scott, founder and CEO of the Leverage Collective. Through her company, Danielle's teaching people how to understand their worth and ask for what they want. So sit back, tune in and listen, because this is the Voices of Black Folk podcast. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Voices of Black Folk. Today we have with us someone who has traversed so many um, different levels of industry and both personal business. You know, as we think about um, equality and we think about the, uh, the different fights for equality, one thing that we seldom talk about is pay equality. And so today I have with us Danielle Scott. Danielle, could you please uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are? Awesome. Hi, Will. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Danielle Scott. I'm founder and CEO of the Leverage Collective. Um, and we, we are all about working, asking for our worth, navigating these corporate spaces, making sure that when we're showing up and when we're in the room, that you know we, we're able to take up space and that we have the language, the support system, um, and the readiness to do what we need to do in order to, to get the money that A, we deserve um, and, and get the respect and uh, be able to navigate in these spaces that really just were not created for us and are still have so many barriers for us to succeed. Um, and so I'm, I'm so excited to be here and to talk with y'all and um, to tell you a little bit about the Leverage Collective. Fantastic. So before we dive into that, we want to learn a little bit about who who is Danielle Scott? Where's Danielle Scott from? Where does she attend college? You know, what is she, who who is this person? So I am um I'm a well, let me just start with this. I am a proud Howard alumni. <laughs> first and foremost, um I know y'all are sick of hearing Howard alumni talk about being a Howard alum. But I, um, I am a proud 2015 graduate of Howard. Um, I was a political science major. I minored in community development. Um, and the work that a lot of my work and framing of reference was really inspired and is sort of projected through the lens of the experiences and the relationships and, you know, just the perspective that a Howard education, being in DC, the chocolate city, and just being able to be immersed in, you know, so much black excellence all the time really helped sort of perpetuate my perspective. But I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee. I've grown up all over the South. Um, I've moved like 11 or 12 times. So I'm originally from Nashville. I've lived in parts of Florida, lived in Virginia, lived in, did a couple stints in Bloomington, Illinois. And my parents are now in Texas and I'm currently based in New Orleans. Um, but after college, I, I was in Philadelphia for two years. And, and it's just been a great experience. I think 
moving around a lot sucks, but now I can basically sit and talk to anybody about anything at any time. And it has certainly helped me learn how to adapt and be a chameleon. So I, I take it for all that it's given me, even, even the challenges that it had growing up. Fantastic. So let's, um, before we um, escalate, let's, let's talk about your Howard experience, because I'm specifically interested in that. Uh, as you, I'm a proud HBC alum, shout out to the North Carolina Central University. Um, and so, you know, Howard specifically has got a lot of hype lately, right? You know, um, being the um, alma mater of the first Black female uh, vice president of these United States of America. It's known as the founding place for so many great um, fraternities and sorority, which both of you are um, and I are members of. It's known for having the first, um, an alumnus being the first Supreme Court justice. And so what did that, what did that institution mean to you? And uh, what made you choose a school like Howard? Yeah, I, I, Howard was, it's the single map, the single most best decision I've ever made mm. easily. I mean, mm. I uh, was this close to not going to Howard. My, my parents were on a strict, I'm only going to pay for in school, up to in-school tuition. And so if you want to go somewhere else, you better get a scholarship. And so it was looking like up until the last second, I was going to end up at UVA, which is, you know, a great institution academically, um, but was not the environment. At the time I was growing up, I was in high school in Charlottesville where UVA is. And so I felt like I had already lived a lot of the UVA life. I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to be somewhere new. And like at the very last second, Howard sent along my full ride package, mm, my scholarship package. So I ended up going by the grace of God, um, full ride Howard. And my parents couldn't tell me anything. <laughs> yeah. um, so right after I got that, I, you know, we quickly went up to campus and it was like ordained because mm. it was, the beautiful spring day, not a cloud in the sky. Every organization was on the yard. And it wasn't like an acceptance student day. It was just a random Thursday mm. where we're like, okay, let's just go see it before we sign these papers. Found my housing, met a bunch of people, and just fell in love with the vibe and the culture and the energy on mm -hmm. campus. And it was so... I've been able to have so many awesome experiences. I've gone abroad twice at Howard. Mm. I was involved in tons of stuff on campus, super active in the community. I was volunteering at the Girls Inc. and Boys and Girls Club. And it just sort of cultivated that spirit of service, of giving back, of be standing in your truth. And I think that's such a huge part of how I think about the world, how I mm -hmm. think about my experience. And, and honestly, I grew up in so many predominantly white spaces that it mm. was really the first time I met so many different types of Black people. Mm. I met, I'm talking about different political backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different nationalities, um, different socioeconomic and regions. I mean, Howard is so diverse and people who, you know, sometimes don't really quite understand what that means because mm -hmm. you know it's a it's a historically black college mm -hmm. all the students are the same race but it's so deeply richly diverse that you're able to just absorb so much 
from so many people. Um, and I mean, the, the faculty, the staff, the information you're able to learn, it just was an, an amazing experience if you're willing to tap into all of it. And I was ready to do mm -hmm. it all. And so I, I had a blast at Howard. Um, I, I joined my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated at Howard and, you know, met my line sisters and friends. And there's just so much love and joy wrapped up in my Howard experience. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why my younger brother and my younger sister followed behind me mm. um, and went to Howard as well, because I, I had such a blast mm. um, and it's shaped so much of who I am and how I navigate. Oh, sounds phenomenal. And so that's interesting because, you know, as we think about our historically black college and we think about navigating, you know, what's next, you know, you and I first met because uh, yourself, as well as my uh, my partner, uh, my ba baby's mother, um, both work at the same financial firm. So yeah. what really drew your interest into the world of finance? Yeah, so I, when I, like I said, I, I majored in political science and I'm mm -hmm. in development. And, you know, going into my senior year, I, I really wanted to work with underserved communities, helping them to fight gentrification, mm -hmm helping them to create access to resources. I wanted to really, um, I was very struck by the differences in DC where mm. you had so much wealth and privilege, but then so much um, disparity in what people had access to. Particularly mm -hmm. I was working at a boys and girls club in Southeast and like the kids are just so amazing and so rich, but it's like you, you get off the train and you're like, this is not the same DC that yeah. I, you know, get to hang out with on U Street or mm -hmm. I get to take the bus down and see down at the Capitol. It just seemed like a foreign country. And so I really wanted to dig into place-based work and why certain communities just didn't get the same access to resources. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting connected with a woman named Lori Chapman through um, a colleague of my dad's and you know, I sat down with her. She was the president of Enterprise Community Partners. And um, and I was sitting in her office over the summer and I brought up my resume and I'm just excited to do the work. And she was like, oh, you don't have finance or accounting on your resume. You can't do the work you're talking about. And I was like, gutted. Um, and she was like, you just should start taking finance and accounting classes. And I'm like, girl, I'm a senior. <laughs> <laughs> graduated early. I'm planning to, to live it up. I was not about to jump into finance and accounting mm. this the game. And so when I went to the career fair for Howard, I really tried to seek, you know, companies where I could get that Excel based quantitative finance mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. accounting background, because that's what she told me I needed. Mm -hmm. if I wanted to serve the communities I wanted to work in. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to be effective, I needed that skill set. And uh, PFM, the company I work for, was recruiting there, and PFM stands for Public Financial Management, and I'm a policy major. I can talk public anything all day, up and down, easy peasy, um, and I found out they had a really intensive training program, so it just ended up working out that I got connected through recruiting there, went up to Philadelphia where we're headquartered and interviewed, and you know was able to get hired in the right part of the firm where I could really you know, bring in my background in working in government and interning in different parts of, you know, uh, finance adjacent for the government. So I worked at Economic Development Administration when I was in college, 
I interned at NeighborWorks America. And so I was able to bring in these experiences mm -hmm. and learn, match it with the finance, the quantitative skills that I was getting on the job. And it just made sense. And now I'm able to do a lot of that work that I sought out to do in communities that I want to work in, but I'm doing it from a very different lens than so many of, you know, the, the, the community-based groups um, that are doing awesome and amazing work. I mean, they, there's just a skill set gap. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to, that I've been able to affect some real change and really distress communities across the country just through that work. Very cool. And so as we think about the work specifically, right, like we are currently, um, hopefully on the downturn of the worst pandemic that this, the world has seen in over 100 yeah. years. And yeah. so I, you know, I just remember at the start of the pandemic, and I would hear Ashley on calls, I would hear her on different um, webinars, just talk about the economic impact that the pandemic was having on um on the nation as a whole. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what that experience like specifically was for you and what role did you take in like trying to mitigate some of those different projects? Sure, yeah. So um, I work mostly with cities and counties and mm -hmm. the pandemic hit municipalities hard. I mm. mean, if folks think about what makes their, you be able to get your trash collected or mm -hmm. makes your streets get repaired or parks run effectively and be open and you know basic level of services that you probably don't think about at all but actually have a huge bearing on your mm -hmm. quality of life those are really run by by revenues that they get from taxes so it's mm -hmm. property taxes that you pay for your house it's sales tax that's assigned to anything you purchase within that community. And I mean, we were all stuck at home for weeks, we thought at first, mm. and then months, weeks turned into months. And that really, you know, put communities, cities and municipalities in a tailspin on mm. all of that revenue that they were projecting for that year. Just, you know, people weren't leaving the house, people mm. weren't spending money, people weren't going to grocery stores or restaurants or movie theaters. and for communities that are really tourism driven, like mm -hmm. New Orleans, where I sit in, I mean, it's devastating to have, mm -hmm. you know, these major uh, financial drivers like Mardi Gras or mm. uh, Jazz Fest, or, you know, if you're think about the city of Orlando where all of, you know, the Disney parks are, all those parks closed down, people mm. were laid off. So it just had ripple effects. Um, coupled with the fact that now cities and counties have to step up in a way that they oftentimes have never had to step up before mm -hmm. and you know are really the vessels of communicating public health to a community and in a way that has never been communicated in our lifetimes at least and so helping clients think exactly through how do I keep services going how do I not uh, how do I find funds so I'm not having to let go of my employees mm. how do I keep my employees safe? How do I deliver the services, you know, in a totally different way so that folks aren't coming into city hall so that, you know, employees aren't having to come to work. You know, if you think about the same struggles that, you know, any employer was thinking about at your own respective jobs around, you know, how do we move forward and continue up working? Mm -hmm. It's amplified tenfold at the city and county level, um, just because there's so many responsibilities that, you know, sit in their lap and that really can't stop. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing 
is working with our clients around helping them figure out exactly what that means, mm -hmm. helping them to navigate the uh, the federal dollars that were coming in and answering questions and, and trying to just be as much of a resource for folks as we can. Um, and it's been tricky because the, you know, this environment has not been clear mm. <laughs> as we can attest. It has not been um, linear and it changes. I mean, for six months or so, it was changing hour by hour, minute by minute. And so mm. it was really interesting to be able to work with communities and be there to be a support to make sure that, you know, the, the services that people needed, the services uh, that were important to the community weren't getting cut because of that lack of funding. And mm. how do you make sure that cuts are being made in an equitable way so that you're not disproportionately impacting a group that's already disproportionately impacted by the pandemic? Mm. Um, how are you not um, going to further reinforce systemic um, issues and disparities within a community. So now coming sort of hopefully at the tail end of this pandemic, a good amount of my work is focused on thinking about how municipalities can infuse equity. And I mean, we didn't even talk about the racial pandemic that mm. you know the rest of the country came to see yep. in June and July of last year that people of color, black people have seen over and over again, and mm -hmm. frankly, probably have PTSD from experiencing our whole lives. I mean, that reckoning of dealing with racial justice and making sure that that's infused in decision-making, coupled with the fact that Black people were more disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Um, there was just so many things at play, and so many of those decisions land on your local effect elected officials, your local city government workers, your administrators. And so there's a lot of power and decision-making that needed a lot of information at the time and, and still does, frankly. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, as I think about, you know, just you mentioned something like not only were people stuck at home, we were, people were losing jobs. You know, I was one of the 40 million plus people that got furloughed, right? And mm -hmm. thankfully, I was able to land back on my feet. But there are a lot of people that are still unemployed. And right. I think oftentimes, you know, when, um, and Ashley often says, is, you know, a recession is when an economic challenge happens to you. A, dep uh, a recession is a, when an economic challenge happens to someone else. A depression is when it happens to you. And there's so many people that are still in that depressed state. And yep. so that kind of uh, curtails me into, you know, the next topic I really want to talk about, which is the leverage collective, right? And, you know, as we think about equality, and, you know, I, I keep on bringing up this word, um, but, you know, not necessarily equality, but equity, right? And mm -hmm. we think about equal pay for equal work and being equitable across the board. One thing we've realized is, you know, when we look at the pay scale, it's, it's the furthest thing from being equal and specifically for black women, although they are the most educated population in the country, they're often the lowest paid. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about how the idea for the leverage collective um, came to you, you know, what different things, um, you know, um, build the impetus to start this, um, start this company. Awesome. Yeah, I would, I would love to, the leverage collective is my passion project. I mean, I have poured so much time and energy into it because I'm so passionate about mm -hmm. people talking about what they need, what they want and what they deserve and mm -hmm. finding the way to advocate for themselves. And so the Lemon Collective originally started, I, I guess I, I really 
did the paperwork and put all of my ideas in one place in 2019. But mm -hmm. I would say I've been doing the work of the Leverage Collective for years. And mm. partially from my own experience of navigating my own corporate job as a young Black woman who had great mentors and a great support system in my parents who I could, you know, really bounce these ideas off of mm -hmm. and get a sense on, you know, what made sense? Is this really true? This sounds kind of weird to me and be able to have these conversations. But mm -hmm. also, I mean, I feel like every, every group has a group chat, my group chat, my board of directors, my girlfriends, we are a collection of boss women, a mm. lot of my line sisters, a lot of people from Howard, we're in this group chat and we're dealing with all of the same issues, whether mm. it's, you know, skepticism about who's getting promoted and why, skepticism about how much you're getting paid, that feeling that you're not getting what you're worth or that people don't appreciate the work that you're doing mm -hmm. or don't even understand the value that you're bringing to a team. And so a lot of this work I was doing through, you know, close friends, um, through relatives. I mean, I, my sister and I joke, but I've ghostwritten so many things for her, <laughs> emails, scripts, um, and, and oftentimes you just need that support system. And I, I found really early on that I had a very natural ability to communicate, to sort of translate um, a corporate environment to mm -hmm change and mm. translate what we wanted into action and do it in a way that you know that term professionalism that's why mm -hmm. it's a word but it's but it's a construct and mm -hmm. how do we present ourselves in the environment that absolutely needs changing and needs some real reform but in order for us to do the reform it's, it's mm -hmm. we have to do it and we have to be able to mm -hmm. have our feet at the table mm -hmm. in order to make the changes uh, for ourselves and for the people coming up behind us. And so mm. the Leverage Collective is intended to help women as well as minorities of any gender, background, sexual orientation, and helping them take ownership of their corporate professional career. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? That means if you want to have a conversation about, you know, your pay, then let's figure out the best way to have a conversation. Here are scripts Let's talk about how you ask it. How do you approach the conversation mm -hmm. so that we're sort of breaking down the barriers of what you're saying versus what your manager or your hiring person is going to be hearing. Mm -hmm. So that we're making sure that what we want is being translated in the way that's going to be effective and ultimately get us what we want. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I found personally from renegotiating and talking about my own salary at work that there are real disparities around how successful people are at having these conversations, how successful people are at, you know, advocating for themselves. And it's so important that regardless of the outcome that you do it anyway, even mm -hmm. if you're uncomfortable, even if they say no, part of the battle and part of, you know, owning your career and understanding the company or the place that you work it's going to be how they, how uh, you're received when you have these conversations. Mm. I think that they say no, if their reaction and if the, the system in which they go about it tells you something that you're very uncomfortable with, now mm -hmm. you know. And it's, it's good information for you to have going forward. So the Leverage Collective is, is a great resource for anyone who's looking to, 
you know, find a way to navigate who's struggling with, you know, reaching out around negotiating their current salary, negotiating a new salary at a new job, talking about promotion, um, talking about, you know, getting on a new project and, and really just figuring out how to navigate in a space, like I said, that wasn't built for us and is just now realizing the value for better or for worse. Um, often at least this time, sometimes it feels a little performative that folks are just now recognizing the value of diversity. But regardless, this is our time to be making those strides and to be um, monopolizing on the fact that people want black talent, people want diverse people in the room. And if we're going to be there, you have a right to own your place there and to not just settle um, for your, for just being there. You can show up for yourself and have others show up for you. Mm, and I think that's so interesting because when I think about, you know, my experience coming up, you know, one thing, you know, coming and talk specifically from a low income first generation background, right? These are things that you're not necessarily taught, even in college, unless you seek out those resources through um, the, um, the workforce center or some type of career development center. These are things that are not initially taught to us. And so a lot of us, you know, we graduate from school, uh, we got to find a job, right? Because we got to make sure that we're fed and we got a roof over our heads. But when it comes to the point of negotiating the contract, you know, we, we they tell us, the job pays 40,000. We're willing to offer you 40,000 because we've never seen that type of money, nor has anybody in our family ever seen that type of money. We're so quick to say, yes, I'll take it. Not really understanding that, you know, they don't like they're telling you 40,000, but they could probably pay you uh, 50, 60,000. Right. And so tell us, like, talk a little bit about, you know, that experience and how, you know, somebody that comes from that perspective that is so fearful that if they try to push back, they'll lose the opportunity opposed to realizing that there's, there's room for negotiation. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I think this is one of the most important inflection points. If we're going to change the equity gap and the pay gap, mm -hmm. starting your base salary, your first salary coming out of school is so important around setting your tone and trajectory, because that's, that's honestly where you're going to lose. Historically, we're going to end up losing because if you start low, even if you're growing at the same rate as mm -hmm. your same colleague um, that had a higher base, you're automatically, you're just not going to be making as much. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we know there is a real old boys club. We know that, you know, there is a, the privilege of white men in particular going into corporate spaces. They have the value in having uncles, brothers, dads, mm. uh, dads, friends. Uh, and, and that circle has sort of created a culture where A, they're asking for it. Mm -hmm. B, they're, and if they're, they have the resources to know what they should be asking for and how these processes should go. Because to your point, you should always negotiate every mm. time, every single time you should make the ask and ask for, you know, what what's what what you should deserve and there's so many resources out there from um glassdoor to linkedin salary where folks can just put in the title of you know the job that they're looking for in the region and you'll have a it'll it'll generate for you uh high medium and low of what the salary ranges are 
all of that information is available to you and you're welcome to and are encouraged to make the ask and negotiate. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are some companies where there is less flexibility either for new hires or people coming out of college, but mm -hmm. every single time you should ask. And I think what it does is not only it sets you up that mm -hmm. you have the ability to advocate for yourself and you've mm -hmm. set that tone very early in your career, but it also shows to your employer that you care about your career, that mm -hmm. you value your profession and that you care enough about the company to ask these real questions um, that's going to determine whether you're going to spend your career there. Because frankly, mm. um, if you're not happy, um, if you're not invested, then you're just not going to enjoy it. And I think people need to remember that, you know, we may love our companies that we work for, and we may get a lot of joy and value out of the work we do in our mm -hmm. day to day. But ultimately, from the career, from your employer's perspective, it's good business for them to get the best value and bang for their buck, to get the most reward for the cheapest dollar amount. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing to do the work for a lower amount, it's great. Maybe they'll reward you later on. Kudos to you. It, ha it does happen sometimes, but I wouldn't bet on it unless you're going to ask for it. And too often, we're not asking for it. Women are not asking for it enough. People of color are not asking for it enough because we're just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. We haven't been taught to ask and we haven't been taught to get over that very painful, you know, awkward thing in the back of your throat where you're just like, I don't know how to do this. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't mm -hmm. want to seem greedy or aggressive or that I'm ungrateful. All of those things flow into our heads when in reality it's, it's customary in business. Mm. And it's a business norm and a professional norm and you should just do it every single time. Mm -hmm. And, and the more you do it and the more you have real conversations about your career and your trajectory and what that means, that's, that signals to me, the more serious you are about the company that you're working for. Mm. And, and I think a lot of places value folks who take ownership of their careers in that way. And so you you touched on something that I think a lot of people don't often think about, right? When they think about negotiations, they think strictly about salary, but there's so many other aspects of that. So if you talk a little bit about other areas of negotiating once you are given um, that official or unofficial uh, job offer. Totally, yeah. So you want to think about it in, total, in terms of total cost. So if you, you should oftentimes look at your base salary amount, you should look at your bonus amount, you should look at um your vacation days a lot of people don't think about that but if you're coming in and particularly if your company pays out for when you leave the firm and they have a cash payout for you know whatever number of vacation days you have a you should whatever vacation you have you should use it because like that's part of a good work-life balance mm -hmm. but in the end it also is associated to dollars every vacation day is associated to a dollar figure and so if you have a higher or more vacation days, if you do decide to leave that organization, you're able to cash those out when you leave. And mm. it can be a simple negotiation. If you can't move me on salary, can you add a vacation day? Mm -hmm. um, also thinking about reimbursements for, uh, for college or for course credit and tuition. And these things are, are great to have. And ultimately, they help to sweeten the deal and should be thought about when in terms of in terms of total comp. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And 
Another thing I want to touch uh, touch on. So oftentimes people think the only time to negotiate is when you first get a job, right? Or like when you're first interviewing, you're first offered. And so you mentioned something about, you know, going to your employer and asking and having that conversation that, you know, I've been here for X amount of years. The, this is the laundry list of what I've done. How do we talk about either a promotion or how do we talk about either a raise? So how, how would you, um, how would you recommend, um, having that conversation with your, with your boss or your employer? Yeah. So it's, it's, there are so many ways to go about it. I think for me, and I would encourage all folks to understand, you know, what the decision-making structure at their own company looks like. Mm. Um, is it a partner structure where there's a set meeting every year where decisions around compensation are made at a firm-wide level or is it just within your particular group or practice area? Those are important to understand what the timing looks like. Mm -hmm. um, do you have an end of year or a mid-year review um, where it's already segmented time where you're supposed to talk about your performance? Um, how I encourage folks to think about particularly negotiating and talking about salary and promotion is to have it think about in terms of what can you be doing better how can I be a bigger value to the firm? Um, and talking about the things that you're already doing really well, as you said. So I think folks should start by thinking about the timing mm -hmm. um, and making sure that they're timing it so that they're not asking too late. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make is they'll wait to ask for you know, a raise or um, ask for that promotion after the decision, the window of decision-making has already ended for their particular company. Mm -hmm. So um, folks should be thinking about that and, and starting to identify what the timing of decision-making is and then try to navigate to get at least a month or two before then. Mm -hmm. So how I typically approach it, and I would encourage others to, is to A, get feedback from their employer, their boss around how they're doing, where their strengths and weaknesses are. Mm -hmm. Typically, if you're doing well, you're not going to get a lot of bad feedback. You're going to mm -hmm. say, you're going to get to keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Nothing to report. From there, I would then start talking about, okay, let's, let me reaffirm my commitment to the firm. Because I mm -hmm. think when you're going into these conversations about your salary or about um, promotion, people want to make sure that you're committed, that mm -hmm. you're there for the right reasons, and that, you know, if they're going to go to bat for you to get either more money for you and you get that promotion, mm -hmm. that that investment that they're going to be making in you is going to pay off for the company, you know, for years and years to come. Um, mm -hmm. I feel that companies aren't going to, are less likely to make the investment in someone they think is a flight risk, or mm -hmm. they think doesn't enjoy their job, or they think doesn't um, value the firm. And so I think it's always important to affirm your commitment to the organization that you're with. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, actually talk about what you've done, where you see yourself, ask real questions around, you know, what the company can do for you in terms of your trajectory and what it looks like. And honestly, like I said before, compensation is a huge part of thinking about a company long-term. It's a huge part in thinking about your career because it plays such a big role on your quality of life, what you can afford. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if I didn't know that, you know, I was going to make a salary to buy my house by X year, 
that that's something I need to know in order mm -hmm. for me to know that I can be committed to the career that I've chosen mm -hmm. and committed to the company. And so I think folks should take it, take it in that approach um, and come with background, do the math and do your due diligence on understanding either what your colleagues make, what other people in your industry make, um, and then understanding sort of what the dynamics at play are. So if your company is a, a for-profit company and you're driven by revenue over a particular year, did you all have a good year or did you have a bad year? Because that'll that'll definitely play a part in how these decisions are made. Mm. Um, thinking about the total environment at, at, at play, at, just in general. I mean, you said it before, a lot of folks were worried about keeping their jobs, let alone you know, wanting to get a raise or wanting to get promoted. What are all of those dynamics at play and sort of put yourself in the shoes of your manager and decision maker so that you understand all the dynamics and can at least acknowledge those dynamics in the conversation, but you're still able to advocate for yourself and demonstrate why you're worth the investment, why you're worth the additional step. And, and I think those are really important for folks to keep in mind. Well, thank you so much for their free consultation. Um, and so I guess my next question is when you think about where you're at now with your company, what do you see yourself growing? Yeah, I, I so right now my work is so right now it's very referral based mm -hmm. where we have a growing community on social media. We've done some really cool workshops um, for organizations like Black Girls in Boardrooms. And, you know, I see the Leverage Collective continuing to make that impact, continuing to support more and more people. Right now, we're very national. So I, I've supported, you know, folks from across the country in varying different industries from mm -hmm. teachers to attorneys to folks working in um, corporate and finance spaces to folks working in nonprofit sector which I think is awesome. And I want to continue, you know, putting it out there that the Leverage Collective and the concepts and the way that you navigate, um, while it's different by, um, by career field, mm -hmm. a lot of the themes are the same because mm -hmm. a lot of the way in which, you know, the corporate or the professional environment was created, it, there's a single thread that flows through most of them. And mm -hmm. so there's so many services that we're able to provide. Um, we're doing a lot around DEI. And I mm -hmm. think that's awesome. It's something I'm very passionate about and helping folks to think around, you know, not only how they can support themselves in their careers, but mm -hmm. also what does it look like to support others that mm -hmm. are in your space and how can you be a resource to folks um, who are coming behind you so that they are giving the tools and the support that perhaps weren't there when you started, but when mm -hmm. you continue to mature and grow into your career, that those supports will be offered broadly um, and that some of the hoops that you may have to jump won't be in existence for others. And so mm. I hope that we'll continue to move in that space and, and hope to create just more systems and a network for, for women to come together, for men to come together, for people of color to support each other. Because ultimately, I think we all want a world that's more equitable. We want a place where anyone can come in and you know their best is acknowledged and awarded mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. valued. And, and I think the more that we continue to bring out the disparities mm -hmm. in how people are navigating and um, understand that some people have a really 
have a much different perspective um, and a worldview at how their work life is compared mm -hmm. to, you know, a typical white man, then mm -hmm. I, the more of that that's understood that, you know, it's, it's harder for me to come to work in a particular day, sometimes just based off the fact that I'm a woman and just based off the fact that I'm black. Mm -hmm. and, and having that understanding and awareness in the workplace will only make it better for people to be able to come and, and have a, be able to give their full and authentic selves and mm -hmm. to be the biggest value for their companies that they want to be. Mm -hmm. Danielle, I was so excited about this episode and since <laughs> you have truly delivered. And so, um, Again, you know, one of the impetus behind me asking you to uh, come on the show today was specifically because this information needs to be shared. People need right. to know that there are resources out there that, you know, if you truly want to have this conversation about your net worth and, you know, what you are worth to a company or an organization is important that, you know, you fend for yourself, right? Because the company is always going to look out for their best interests. And right. so where can our listeners uh, find you, reach out to you, get your services, and just learn more about the, uh, the Leverage Collective? Awesome. Yeah. So everyone can go to the leveragecollective.com. There's a ton of resources on there about our services. There's testimonials from our clients and there's a lot on there about how we, what our beliefs are and how we approach, mm -hmm. you know, all of these topics. I mean, our motto is informed, prepared, empowered, and we really mean that because we want folks to be able to leverage themselves. Mm. We all have the ability to do, you know, anything we want to do, but ultimately, um, unfortunately, people of color and minorities and women oftentimes don't have the same access to the playbook that others do. Mm. And so we want to make sure that that's brought to the forefront. So our website is a great place to do that. You can follow us on Instagram at the Leverage Collective, um, as well as on Twitter. And, and we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. So we're, we're, we're definitely available for folks to connect with us. I'm always available um, and I can be reached at any one of those places. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're excited to work with people. We're excited to see clients and, and people be able to not only advocate for themselves, mm -hmm. get what they're worth, but also to see, you know, it's, it's empowering to be able to ask for something and to do the research and to put yourself out there in a way and get results. And even if you don't get the results you want, it's still a value in making the ask. And I mm. think that's a big piece that I'd want people to, to think about is always, always, always make the ask because I mean, closed mouths don't get fed. And if mm. we're not going to ask for it, then, you know, we're leaving it to other people to decide what we're worth and to decide what we deserve. When in reality, you already know what you're bringing to the table. So make sure that you're putting it at the forefront. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, here at Voices of Black Folk is our intent not only to bring on phenomenal people um, within the uh, Black community doing phenomenal things, but spotlight people such as yourself doing great things. So, you know, I hope everybody tunes in, subscribe, and check out uh, every pot we're available on every podcast um, streaming site. And yeah, you heard from Danielle today, reach out to her, leverage your worth and understand that you are more of an asset to that company than they are to you. Have a great day. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and really took something from it. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe, like, and share this episode. 
Our goal on this podcast is to highlight and give a voice to the Black community by bringing phenomenal individuals who are creating and charting paths toward greatness. And through your support, we can continue to change lives. Thanks again, and don't miss the next episode of the Voices of Black Folk podcast. I'm your host, Will Anyu.